You can be seated. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we indeed continue our sermon series through the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment this morning. As you're turning to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, I just want you to know that I'm wearing blue today in honor of of little baby McGuire who showed up because I got the text this morning from Kevin. Now, Zach and Jess might like the color of Bethany's dress, which is green, more than they like the color of the jacket, which is blue, but he is a boy, so Zach has to, you know, Zach has to deal with it. This is the one day where he can say, go blue. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray now, Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. These are the words that President Bill Clinton said when he put his hand on the Bible and testified under oath to a grand jury in 1998. Clinton was not the first U.S. president to face impeachment. He was not the last U.S. president to face impeachment. But in the late 90s, President Bill Clinton was charged with perjury, obstruction of justice, and abuse of power. The 42nd president not only shaped America's cultural attitude about sexual ethics when he lied under oath about his adultery with Monica Lewinsky, but the leader of the free world redefined truth with his testimony. Listen to what President Clinton said. This is from footnote 1,128 of the Star Report, if you're going to go fact check that. 1128. This is what President Clinton said. He said, it depends, quote, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. If is means is and never has been, that is not, that is one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. Now, if someone had asked me on that day, are you having any kind of sexual relations with Miss Lewinsky, that is, asked me a question in the present tense, I would have said no, and it would have been completely true. Close quote. Depends on what your definition of the word is, is. Clinton argued that he did not lie under oath because he took the question to be in the present tense. And at that moment, he was not in an adulterous relationship with Monica Lewinsky. 
what a snapshot of the relationship that our Western, individualistic, postmodern culture has with the truth. The sentiment of this era in America and in the West is live your truth. No one can tell you who you are or what's right for you except for you. Live your truth. That's the mentality of the modern West. Yet it is in the midst of our confused culture that the ancient word of God still speaks. In the ninth commandment, our sovereign God commands us, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God commands us to be a people of truth. And the kingdom of Christ creates a people of truth. Now, in order to accurately apply the ninth commandment, we have to remember the covenantal horizon at this point in the redemptive narrative. Shouldn't be hard for us to remember because we've been going through the book of Exodus and rehearsing the story of the Exodus and the trek to Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Yahweh redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt through his mediator Moses, and now at Mount Sinai, God gave his people the Old Covenant. Some call it the Mosaic Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments specifically, and the 600 plus laws that we see in uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which are basically all just expositing the Ten Commandments. All of the 600 plus laws of the Old Covenant really fall under the umbrella of the Ten Commandments. Um, But we're talking specifically about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments under the Old Covenant were both law and Scripture. They were simultaneously law and Scripture. For Israel, the Ten Commandments were not merely God's Word, though they were God's Word. Right? The Ten Commandments are the first Bible ever written by the finger of God. So they were, that was their Bible, that was their Scripture, but it was also, the, the commandments were also the theocratic law of the land. So if you think, it'd be like, you know, if, if in America we had the Bible and we had, you know, the American legal system and that, you know, that, that we viewed them the same way. That's how it was for Israel under the Old Covenant. And legally, the Ninth Commandment uh, regulated testimony in court, right? That's the first and primary application, at least legally, at least in terms of the the law part, not the scripture part, but the the law part, you know, the the civil, the ceremonial, uh, the moral. The, The first application of the Ninth Commandment for Old Covenant Israel was how they testified in court cases. 
That's the first application. But theologically, the ninth commandment, as we've seen from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, theologically, the ninth commandment was requiring honesty. So it was speaking legally to court system, to how we deal in business, all that. Theologically, scripturally, it's speaking to honesty. God is requiring that his people are honest. So let's think about those two things first. First, legally, the ninth commandment regulated court testimony, how people testified in court. Because in ancient Israel, conviction of law-breaking was impossible without witnesses. No one could be um, found guilty of any crime unless there were witnesses that would testify that they were guilty. Uh, And the fate of the accused rested in the hands of those who testified. In Deuteronomy 19, God giving further exposition to the ninth commandment says that if someone bears false witness, if somebody lies in a legal testimony under the old covenant in Israel, that that person would receive whatever punishment would have been issued for the defendant. So listen to Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. So one witness isn't even enough. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So if you were to bear false witness, if you were to lie under oath and it were to be proven that you were bearing false witness, then the punishment that would be given to the one accused would then be given to you. That means if, it was a, uh, if you were to bear false witness in a capital case, then it would cost you your life. God took this very seriously. Every, court, every culture, of course, that has flourished historically has had some form of legal system predicated upon honesty. In the American legal system, we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In Israel, under the old covenant, honesty was to be the baseline for their legal system. But the ninth commandment does not merely pertain to the legal system, specifically, theologically, as scripture, it applies to all of life. Generally. And generally, in the ninth word, in the ninth commandment, God's people are required to be honest. God requires us to deal honestly with our family, with our neighbors, and in business. If you were to read a a very wooden, 
uh, translation of the Hebrew of the ninth commandment, it would read something like this. Do not answer your friend emphatically affirming deception. That's another way to say you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not answer your friend emphatically affirming deception. The ninth commandment requires honesty. And the ninth commandment forbids lying, deceit, slander, gossip, backbiting. We saw earlier in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that the ninth commandment requires that you do everything in your power to protect your neighbor's name. All people are made in the image of God. And all people must be respected as such. The ninth commandment is placed between the eighth commandment and the tenth commandment. The eighth commandment, of course, we saw last week, forbids stealing. The tenth commandment forbids coveting. And in between stealing and coveting, God says, we shall not bear false witness. He gives us these commands in this order because like stealing and like coveting, when you bear false witness against someone, when you lie to someone, you are depriving them of something that rightfully belongs to them as an image bearer, the truth. Most fundamentally, every human being deserves the truth because Every human being bears the image of God. John Calvin said that the eighth commandment ties your hands and the ninth commandment ties your tongue. Because people bear the image of God, they deserve the truth because the truth belongs to God. Everyone understands this concept that, for example, if someone were to publicly spit on the American flag. We all understand that there would be people who would be offended by that. Not because a piece of cloth was disrespected, but because the flag represents a country and to disrespect the flag is a statement against that which the flag represents. The same is true when we are untruthful with those who represent God by bearing his image. When we are dishonest with people, we are dishonest with God because people represent God. As all of the Ten Commandments do, the Ninth Commandment, of course, reveals the character of God. You shall not bear false witness. That is true because God is truth. There is no truer truth than God. To despise truth is to despise God. Titus 1-2 says God never lies. Lies are antithetical to the character of God. Lies are a mark of the enemy, Satan. Listen to John 8:44 when Christ rebukes the Jewish leadership he does so with these words he says you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, that's Satan, when Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God is the truth. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Satan indeed has been a liar from the beginning, hasn't he? In the Garden of Eden, when Yahweh told Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the tree, that Adam would surely die, that's Genesis 2, 17, when the serpent comes and deceives Eve, his words to her were, you will not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. And humanity fell in sin, why? Because we believed the lie. All of the problems, all of the pain, all of the persecution, all of the sickness, all of the sin, all of the death, everything that's wrong in the world and has been can be traced back to the reality that we believed a lie. Satan is the father of lies. God hates lying. And lies lead us to hell. Psalm 101, 7 and 8, God says, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all evildoers from the city of Yahweh. Listen to what Revelation 21 says about the eternal destiny of liars. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake, of, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21, 8. That is really bad news. You know why? Because you're a liar. And so am I. We are all guilty of breaking the ninth commandment. We have all lied. We have all broken the ninth commandment in thought, word, and deed. We have all broken the ninth commandment by what we have done, and we have all broken the ninth commandment by what we have left undone. The ninth commandment reveals to us that we are all guilty and that we all rightly deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. The law reveals the bad news. But thanks be to God... There is good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ both followed and fulfilled the ninth commandment on our behalf. Jesus followed the ninth commandment in thought, word, and deed. Jesus kept the ninth commandment by what he did, and Jesus never broke the ninth commandment by leaving anything undone. 
Jesus never bore false witness. Jesus never lied. Jesus always told the truth. That's essential to what C.S. Lewis called the great trilemma, isn't it? That if we were to take Jesus at his word, he can only be one of three things. He can either be a liar, he could be a lunatic, or he could be the Lord. There are no other options. Well, we know Jesus is not a liar. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus never sinned. Jesus not only followed the ninth commandment, but church, Jesus is the fulfillment of the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment may give us a rule, a law, a command, which if we follow it, will create human flourishing. And that's true, isn't it? If everyone was honest with each other all the time, that would aid in human flourishing. That's true. The ninth commandment also reveals to us that we are guilty lawbreakers who need forgiveness and cleansing. That's also true. But church, most fundamentally, the ninth commandment was given not for those reasons, but to point us to God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his gospel, John gives us a glimpse of this with the opening words in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. N-R-K-N-Halagos. Now, if you were to take like an elementary, you know, New Testament Greek class and you were to start memorizing vocabulary, uh, one of the first words that you would learn would be logos. And the gloss or the definition, the, the semantic range for the word logos on your little vocabulary card would probably read something like this. You'd have logos on one side and on the other side it would say word reason, account, meaning logos, depending on the context, could be translated as word, it could be translated as reason, it could be translated as account, among other things. But remember, you're in an elementary class, so you're not going to get too exhausted by it just yet. If you know word, reason, account, that'll be good enough for the final. You'll get the question right, and you'll do okay. There are a lot of cultural, different cultural statements that are um, packed into John's declaration. In the beginning was the word, N-R-K-N, halagas. Uh, Hebrew theology, uh, and, 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 and at least in part, some Greek philosophy, some Greek worldview. Because you see, in Greek culture and in Greek philosophy, the logos, how the, how the Greeks used the word logos, was they viewed it as the Logos is the meaning of life. The Logos is the truest truth. The Logos is the greatest witness to metaphysical reality. The Logos is that which is most ontologically pure. If you were to go to the very beginning, to the very meaning, to the very reason for everything that exists, in Greek philosophy, they would call that thing the Logos. And John says that's what Christ is. Christ is the Logos. Not only does Jesus not bear false witness, but also Jesus Christ 
himself, he is the truest witness in all of existence. Anything that's true that has ever been spoken in the history of communication is a reflection of who Jesus is. It's like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. Jesus is the personification of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says that the world was created for Jesus. That's the reason behind everything was created for the glory of Jesus Christ. That this man, Jesus Christ, might be the name that is above all names. That's the reason God created the world. So that means that anything that's true in the world is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. There is no such thing as religious truth versus secular truth. Anything that is true reflects the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus. So we read in our call to worship from John chapter 14 where Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not just that Jesus always speaks the truth. Church, Jesus declares himself to be the truth. Jesus is the truth. He's the very embodiment of the ninth commandment. If the ninth commandment were to step off this paper and put on some clothes and walk around, it would be Jesus. Because Jesus is the embodiment. He's the personification. He's the incarnation of the ninth commandment. He's the truth. Anything that's antithetical to Jesus is a lie. Because Jesus is the truth. Everything pertaining to Jesus is the truth. So the most important step that we can take in order to keep the ninth commandment is to repent of our sins and to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is the truth? The truth is that God is the holy creator and that in Adam we have sinned against God. We believed the lie. The truth is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life and to die as a substitute for his people and to resurrect on the third day, ushering in his kingdom. And the truth is that you must repent of your sin. You must acknowledge that you are a sinner and you must turn from your sin. And the truth is that you must place your faith in Jesus alone. You must take the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must assent to the validity of these truth claims. And you must transfer your trust to Jesus. This is a room full of liars. This is a room full of ninth commandment breakers. And our only hope in life and death is the gospel of Jesus. We look 
to Christ and we repent of our sins. And then we sin again. And what do we do? We look to Christ and we repent of our sins and we keep running back to Christ and we keep running back to repentance and faith. Why? Because that's the truth. Because that's the truth. Because it's what's real. When God saves us through the good news of Jesus, we are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works regeneration. He indwells us. We repent. We believe. And then he, the Holy Spirit, he enables us to love the truth. The kingdom of Christ creates a people of truth. Remember, under the old covenant, the ninth commandment was both law and scripture. Under the new covenant, the ninth commandment is scripture, but it's not law. It's not the theocratic law of the land because the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All that's left is the moral aspect of the law, and so scripturally, this is where the application comes to us. Um, In America, of course, we do rightfully have laws against perjury, but lying in general is not against the law. Yet the word of God commands us and compels us to be a people of truth. Of course, we don't live in a culture of truth. We might be tempted to think, well, things are bad now, they used to be better. Of course, this is not the case. Scripture always differentiates between the church and the world. St. Augustine, back in the 400s, when he wrote, the, he wrote about the city of God versus the city of man, um, these two groups of people can be traced all the way back to the garden, where God said that there would be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain was the seed of the serpent, Abel was the seed of the woman, and from that point forward, every single person who has ever lived has either believed God's promises or not. They've either believed the truth or not. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, city of God, city of man, church, world. Our Western culture, to one degree or another, has embraced a form of postmodernism, which contends that really there is no ultimate truth. That's the prevailing worldview of our day. There is no ultimate truth. And so we are encouraged to live our truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. But as long as you don't hurt anyone else, then it doesn't really matter what you think or what you say or what you do. Live your truth. The problem with this worldly philosophy is how can we trust the claim that there is no ultimate truth? How can we trust that that is true? The statement, there is no ultimate truth, is in fact an ultimate truth claim, right? If you're declaring there really is no truth, well, then that's the ultimate truth, is that there is no truth. But how, do I, how can I trust that you're right? 
because you say there is no ultimate truth. By what standard is this claim made? What is the standard with which the ultimate truth claim is made? For the world, or at least for our Western world, there is none. Because it feels good. But as Christians, we know the ultimate standard in existence. We can say for certain what is true and why it is true. Because, as Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and he is not silent. Truth is not a sociological construct, which is a byproduct of naturalistic evolution. Propositional truth has been revealed in the word of God. God is there and he is not silent. So the reason we know anything is because it has been revealed to us by the ultimate truth standard in existence. Jesus prayed to his father in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Because we know the author of the truth, the ninth commandment then requires that we must be people who are honest. The ninth commandment requires honesty, both as individuals and as a church. 2 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18 commands that your yes be yes and your no be no. That means you don't say yes, but you mean no, or you don't say no, but you mean yes. You're honest. Ephesians 4.15 calls us to speak the truth in love. Verse 25 of Ephesians 4 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one of another. Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary, said that churches are islands of truth in an ocean of lies. May that be so of you. May that be so of Christ Community Church. But not only does the ninth commandment require that we speak the truth, lowercase t, but the ninth commandment requires that we speak the truth, capital T. The ninth commandment not only requires us to be honest, but it also requires that we speak the truth of the gospel, the ultimate truth about Jesus. We have been given God's saving message in the gospel with a commission to take it to the world. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Lord Jesus says, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Romans 10, 14 and 17 say, How then will I call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God's redemptive mission is to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, and we are a part of that. 
as we make disciples of Jesus by speaking the gospel of Jesus. Speaking the truth. Because the kingdom of Christ creates a people of truth. Where's the motivation here? The gospel tells us that the liars are redeemed through the one who was falsely convicted and murdered. At Jesus' trial, the Jewish leadership couldn't find two witnesses to convict him. They couldn't find two with the same story. So what did they do? How was Jesus convicted and sentenced? Israel bore false witness against God incarnate. The ultimate truth in the universe was falsely testified against and murdered in the place of liars. But now, through faith in Jesus, we, the liars, can stand in the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you now that you would keep your promise that your word would not return void. Jesus, we just read that you commissioned us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and to teach them everything that you have commanded and that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, we would ask now that in spite of the weak manner in which this gospel was presented this morning, that you would take your word and you would plant it in the hearts, in dead hearts, that you would work regeneration and bring life to those who are dead this morning, that they would see the beauty of who Jesus is and the beauty of what Jesus did and they would turn from the lie of the serpent, the lie that even if they sin, they will not die. Father, we know that's a lie because you tell us that if we say that we have no sin, that we are deceived and that the truth is not in us. So, Father, we ask this morning for everyone in the gathering, that they would believe the truth, whether it's for the first time or for a hundred years now. We ask that this morning, once again, we would believe the truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, who is the truth. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.